to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches them and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I pray the Lord will just open that word up for us this morning. It's quite a, a tough passage to being given, really. Um, and I don't feel adequate to, to do it, but I'll do my best. Okay, so I'm going to ask for some volunteers this morning. Any of the youngsters... Um, perhaps not the very young ones, but some of the middling young ones, um, and perhaps one or two of the, the older young ones would like to come. I want ten people this morning, so it's a it's a, a marathon task this morning. So can I have ten volunteers before I pick anybody? Yeah, come one, two. Any more? Any more? Of the youngsters want to come up? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There we go. It doesn't matter if it's one more. It can be 11. It doesn't matter. That's working. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you very much. So um, it's a question and answer to start with. So I'll stand around here because I've, I've got the questions. So you can't see the answers. But actually, the, the answers, are, answers are open. So the question is, we're going to be looking at the law. And I want to know what you think we mean by the word law. What would you say the law is? How would you describe the law? Anybody? Do you know what, do you know what think? Anybody want to start us off? Put your hand up if you've got an answer what you think the law is about. Why do we have laws? I would say the law is basically a rule book that teaches you how to become peaceful. That's excellent. That's, that's almost my sermon done for me. So the laws <laughs> are done. The laws are there so that we can have, be peaceful. We can get on with one another. So they're, they're a guide and they're a rule book. Anybody else? Any comments? No, that's good. That, that, that covers pretty much everything. So it's a set of regulations. Um, it's about how we, can, how we can live and how we can do things um, in harmony with one another. How we can um, do things so that nobody else really gets hurt. That's what the laws are there for, their guidance and direction. So if we didn't have laws, imagine there were no laws. What would happen um, if we were driving cars? What about the highway code? If we didn't have the highway code and we didn't have any laws about driving cars, what would happen? crash yes everyone would crash are you gonna say something 
Everyone would actually honk their horns. They would. There would be a lot of noise. And in fact, there'd probably be a lot of shouting as well. Um, anybody else? We didn't have... It would be like India. <laughs> yes, it would be like... It would be a, a lot of noise, a lot of confusion. There'd probably be accidents. People could get hurt. Um, and there'd probably be um, breakdown of relationships and there'd be arguments. Okay, so if we didn't have those laws, that's what would happen. What about the laws of football? Subject deep to my heart. What about if we didn't have any laws in football? You could use handball, then slip the ball out your hand and then someone could trip over the ball. Yeah. You could more or less do what you want. Anybody else? I reckon West Ham would win. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a chance I could say the same for Oxford as well. But yeah. Anybody else? What would happen if we didn't have rules in football? What about this end? What would happen if you didn't have laws? You'd have chaos, wouldn't you? Um, there'd be confusion. There'd be people fouling. There'd be 21 players. There'd be a goalie cowering at the back of his neck with 22 players thundering down the pitch towards him. Um, and people could get hurt. And there'd be arguments, and there'd be breakdown of relationships. So one more. What about if we didn't have laws about what we do in the countryside? What happens if there weren't any countryside laws? The sheep would all get out. That's right. The gates would be left open, wouldn't they? People wouldn't consider what other, other people... Wildfires. Yeah, there'd be wildfires. We get that, don't we, even now, because people don't obey the laws. Anybody else? Also fly-tipping. Yeah, wholesale fly-tipping. I mean, there's, there's so much mess in the countryside. So there'd be gates left open. Um, people would go where they wanted. There'd be animals escaping. There'd be rubbish everywhere. Um, people could get hurt. There'd be arguments. And there'd be breakdown of relationships. So laws are necessary. Now, we're going to get um, my good volunteers here. If you could come and stand over here in a sort of a circle. All of you just sort of round in a, in, a, in a rough circle. What I'm going to do is we're all going to count down from 10 to 1. So 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. A um, bit more in a circle round here. Yeah, that would be fine. A bit further apart. That's it. So it's a slightly bigger circle, all facing inwards. Look around. What I want you to do is when we, when we start counting from 10... And I say, no. When I say go, we're going to count down from 10. And I want each of you to change places with somebody else in the circle. So you're standing somewhere different. Okay? On the marks, get set, go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. It actually wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad, but... There were no rules on how to do that. And so there was a bit of confusion, wasn't there? Um, if they'd been standing closer together, I'd sort of move them apart to save accidents. But there could have been accidents, and um, it all could have gone very wrong. So now we're going to try it with one rule. Um, and the passage we're looking at talks about laws, but it also talks, so talks about righteousness. And righteousness, as, as Pete said last week, is right-relatedness. So we're going to do it in a right-relatedness way. So I want you this time just to hold hands with one another. Move away from the mic. Okay, so now 
we're holding hands and we're in right relatedness. And I've got one rule. Okay, and the one rule is you take three steps to the left when I say go. Ready? One, two, three, go. One, two, three. Okay, now we, that was all very nice and peaceful and joyful. And everybody is standing where they weren't standing before. They've all changed places with one another. And we had one rule, and that's how powerful the rules are, and that's how powerful the law is. So thank you to everybody. Thank you for all your help. You can all go and sit down and relax. So how does that relate to our passage of Scripture? Well, this passage... Um, oh, it's gone. This passage uh, is central to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is drawing us right into the heart of his message here. And that is the center of his heart, and that is that word righteousness. He's emphasized earlier on in the sermon, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And righteousness is a relational word. Um, The Hebrew and the Greek words for righteousness are are, are sort of relational words. Um, They can be equally interpreted as justice or justification. And although justice is all about laws and um, principles and regulations, it's also about establishing a right relatedness with others and with individuals and with parties. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right relatedness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of right relatedness, or as in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your right relatedness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And why won't that happen? Why not? Because the whole purpose of Jesus coming from heaven to earth was all about righteousness and right relationships. Now, Paul the Apostle was obviously fully aware of that. He wrote lots of letters, and in his letter to the Romans, um, let's have the second slide up, thank you very much. This is what he says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For the gospel... For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we might ask Paul, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? And Paul would respond, because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And we ask, what does that mean? What does the gospel that brings the power of salvation mean? And Paul says, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's way of making relationships right is revealed by his words and his commands. And it's this righteousness that's the central theme for the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We can go back to slide three, please. So, interestingly, this is the first time Jesus makes himself the subject of a sentence. If you sort of think back to the Beatitudes that we've read, he uses other words. This is the first time he says I in this passage. 
Previously, he said words like the. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you. Your. As in rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And then you again. You are the salt of the earth as we heard last week. You are the light of the world. So he's talking outwardly to people, saying, this is all about you. Now, I'm going to tell you about me. And he's changed his tack, and he points his finger at himself, and he uses the word I. And in verse 17, he says, do you do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away. And in verse 20, for I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses. So four times, just in that short passage, I, 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 me. But he doesn't appeal to higher authority. He says, I have come. And we might ask, where have you come from? And why have you come? And we're going to look at um, John chapter 17, verses 6 to 8. Thank you very much. So Jesus is praying for his disciples to his Father in heaven. And he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me. And they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believed you sent me. Jesus says, uh, I didn't come to change the law and the prophets. He says, I didn't come to leave anything out of the law and the prophets. So what did Jesus do? He actually added himself to make the law and the prophets useful to us. He, he, he didn't change the law. He changed the emphasis. And that's what he was doing throughout the Beatitudes that we've been reading about. He, he, he changed the emphasis of what people understood and this is, this is how you should now understand it, now that I have come. So Jesus claimed that he had come to fulfill the prophets. And that's something everybody would have been looking forward to. That's something everybody would have wanted. The prophets revealed God's great desire to send someone to bring his plans to completion. And Jesus says, I've come. I've come. The longing of the prophets is now fulfilled. The new covenant is now being inaugurated. The, hen- the kingdom of heaven is now breaking through. I, the promised one, have come. So we can rejoice that Jesus has come to fulfill the prophets. But what about the law? What did Jesus mean when he said he came to fulfill the law? Well, we need to understand Uh, that to the first century believers, there were mainly three different types of law. There were the sacrificial law, 
And that was primary to do with um, worship rituals, um, what sacrifices to offer. And then there was the ceremonial law, which had to do with daily living and distinctions about what was acceptable practice and what wasn't, what was clean and what wasn't. And then there was the moral and ethical law, which we've touched on this morning when we were asking the questions. Uh, And that was about how to run human society in a way that was going to be just and positive so that goodness could come out of it rather than confusion. So the sacrificial laws, that's pretty clear then how Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law. I think we probably, most of us here, if not all of us here, will understand that Jesus came as a sacrifice. He came once and for all. He came and he died on the cross and he said, it is finished. So Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial law by his death on the cross. It's clear how he fulfills the ceremonial laws, even even though these related to um, a society and a culture radically different to ours, the principle behind the laws remains the same in the ceremonial laws and in the moral laws. And we can't come before God, just as those uh, first century Jewish people couldn't come before God unless they were clean. They had to produce that sacrifice. They couldn't come to God if they were unclean. They had to stay at home and stay in their houses until if they were ill or if they'd got things wrong with them or deformities or anything. They couldn't actually get into the temple to worship God. But Jesus came and he cleanses us all. And he does that by placing his heart and his word and his spirit in us. There's no way we can cleanse ourselves. But Jesus cleanses us by his word and his spirit. He comes and he lives within us. He removes the barriers between us and God. And that leads us to the moral laws and the ethical laws. Do the moral and ethical laws of the time of Judah still apply today? More specifically, what about the one we know as the Ten Commandments or the laws we know as the Ten Commandments? Because that's what most of the laws are based on, the Ten Commandments. Do they still apply today? This is... uh, up here is the, is the Ten Commandments. It's the Rogers Simplified Version. Um, just to clarify um, for the Bible scholars that are here today, it, it's, got, it, it's, it's actually six, verses 6 to 21, so I've taken out the main headings. Um, please forgive me. Um, no stones have been hurled. Um, no shouts of no have been given. So I'm, ex- I'm thinking that you'll accept my word that these are the Ten Commandments. And they go like this, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods than me. You shall make no images of me. You shall not use my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not cover your neighbor's ox, Mercedes, pension fund, holiday in the Bahamas. New clothes, whatever it might be, do not cover. So this was the law that Jesus was referring to, really. And Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? 
I think he does it in three ways. Firstly, he affirms it. He acknowledges that actually, yes, this is the right way we should live. If you, if you go by these principles, then that would be the right way for living. And that's the way he lived his own life. Uh, and that's actually quite important, especially when we read the New Testament and we look at the epistles of Paul and Romans and Galatians. Because some people will conclude that the old moral laws have no place in Christianity today. And now we're in a period of grace. Do we need the old laws? They quote texts like Romans 10 and 14, sorry, Romans 10 and 14. And they say, well, Paul said that Christ is the end of the law. And he did say that. And they conclude that what Paul is saying is that when Christ came, the law ended. Is that what he meant? I'm sure Greg is dying to jump out of his seat at the moment and shout out, no, that's out of context. Read to the end of the sentence. Because what Paul actually says is, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And what he means is that now Jesus Christ has come and given his life on the cross, no one needs to try and earn righteousness by keeping the law. The good news is that we've all entered into a right relationship with the living God by grace when we believe in Jesus. And that's been the rule actually from way back in Genesis. In Genesis 15:6, it says Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul explains that further in Romans 4.10. He says, under what circumstances was it credited to Abraham? Was it after he was circumcised? So was it after he had started trying to fulfill the law? Or was it before? And Paul says it was not after. It was before. He received circumcision as a sign as a seal of that righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So before the requirement to give some sign that a relationship or a covenant had been entered into, God graciously imparted righteousness to all who believed. And there was no exception in that. Jews, Gentiles, males, females, regardless of race or color or ethnicity, or sexuality, Jesus says, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, what was the first line of the law? Anybody? It wasn't, you shall have no other gods before me. It's actually, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. That is the first line of the uh, Ten Commandments. That's the introductory line. And what God is saying is, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. You already have a solid relationship with me. Now, here's the way I want you to live. And he gives the laws. I mean, we don't need to live by the law. If we break the laws, it's not going to break our relationship with God. It's not going to do us any good because it will destroy the way that we live sometimes. 
but our relationship with God is sound. We can always come back to him and he will forgive us. So that is a promise. that We've got that right relationship with him as long as we accept Jesus Christ as laws, as Lord. So it was never intended that we must keep the law in order to gain a right relationship with God. The law was given as a guide to maintaining a right relationship with God and with others. And I think that's what Paul meant when he wrote, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. We've already entered into that right relationship with God by his grace. But that doesn't mean the law doesn't have a place in our lives. In fact, the law can't be removed from our lives. It's built into our lives. We know when we're doing wrong. It's inside us. It's in our DNA. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And everything isn't accomplished. We are living in great days. Um, Jesus has come. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus is the right hand of God. But Jesus is coming again. So it's not all complete. So we can't just say the law doesn't matter anymore. These things are still important. We need to get that into our hearts. Jesus is saying that this ethical and moral law is durable. It's enduring. It's as enduring as creation itself because the law emerges from the heart and the mind of the creator. In fact, it reveals the heart and mind of the creator. It's a demonstration of who the creator is and how he created us to live. He says, you shall not murder because I do not murder. You shall not commit adultery because I don't commit adultery. You shan't bear false witness because I don't bear false witness. So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is affirming the law because he's the creator. He's the lawgiver. He's the one that's come down from heaven to earth and he's come to confirm his own law. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the moral law by embodying it. What do I mean by that? He embodies it. He actually lives it out. In fact, he's the first and the only person who's ever fully achieved that. Of course, the scribes, uh, they were the official teachers of the law. The Pharisees, they were the official keepers of the law. They didn't see it Jesus' way. Because as Jesus and later Paul tried to show them, what had happened was they had distorted the law. They would changed the purpose of the law. The law, as we've seen, is all about building right relationships. That's what the demonstration was all about. It's per- the whole purpose of the law is to maintain right relationships, um, to get peace and harmony into the world, respect for one another into the world. That's what the laws are for. But the Pharisees have missed the point. They substituted the grace that they'd been given and become obsessed with the rules and the regulations. And even worse, they were trying to impose those rules and regulations on others who came to faith in Christ. Of course, we don't do that now, do we? Thirdly, Jesus 
fulfills a moral law, if you like, by filling it to the full. He draws out the full intention of the law. He emphasizes the importance of living obediently to the law. And his attitudes match his actions. He's the one that gives it its full meaning. That's what I mean by filling it to the full. After all, he was with God in the cloud above the mountain when the law was given. He was the voice that's come in the flesh. And he's the one that spoke the Sermon on the Mount. We're hearing direct from the lips of the Lord Jesus, the one come down from heaven to earth. And he's saying, you've heard what the so-called experts have told you about the law, but I, I'm the one who spoke the law, now I'm going to tell you about it. And that's what he does in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I wrote it. Now let me tell you what it's all about. So Jesus fulfills the law by affirming it. He fulfills the law by embodying it. Draws out the content. He draws out the meaning. And he fulfills the law by filling it to the full because he is the full meaning behind it. Who remembers the Chuckle Brothers? Few people remember the Chuckle Brothers. What was the Chuckle Brothers' catchphrase? Anyone else? Shout out. What was it? What was it again? Sorry. Me to you. Me to you. You to me. If they were trying to move an object from A to B, they'd be going round in a circle. Me to you. You to me. Me to you. You to me. And that's what Jesus' laws are about, in a peculiar way. Remember the circle of volunteers that we had? They were all holding hands. They were all in a right relationship with one another. And they managed to achieve, in the end, harmony and purpose. It was all about completing that intentional, relational circle of God giving the law to us. That was the purpose of the demonstration. It was about the law living within us, joining us back to God, the lawgiver. And it's this completing that circular relationship that's at the heart of Jesus' sermon. Can we have the next slide up again? Oh, that's a slide five. Thank you. So we're back in Matthew five seventeen to 20. Verse 20 This is a difficult one. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? We have to exceed the Pharisees. We have to exceed the scribes. These were the top religious leaders of the day. What did the people actually think when Jesus was saying that? We, we, we respect these guys. And they certainly respected themselves. People thought they were way out there above the ordinary folk like you and me. And that was the way the scribes and the Pharisees saw themselves on a pedestal. It wasn't the way Jesus saw them particularly. Because they were just living out the me to you part of the circle. They were accepting what Jesus had said and they had got the laws. How oh, great, we've got the laws. Now let's live by the laws. They'd forgotten about the grace bit. 
So there wasn't a completion of the circle. They didn't have that relationship. They were trying to rely just on their own efforts in the end. So they didn't complete the circle as it was intended to be. They were living the letter of the law. They weren't living the spirit of the law. And they thought they were righteous as long as they had this external conformity to rules and regulations. And what does Jesus say to them? It doesn't mince his words, Jesus. Woe to you. He says, that's dramatic, wasn't it? I'll do that again. Woe to you, he said. Because external conformity to rules and regulations isn't what keeping the law is all about. That's not what it's there for. The law has got more to do with the inner workings of the human heart. It's got more to do with maintaining that circular right relationship with the creator. And what Jesus is doing in this passage of scripture is moving us beyond mere rules and regulations into the purpose of those rules and regulations. And the main purpose is right relationship. He's moving us into kingdom ways, into his kingdom, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of righteousness. We may never murder anyone. Hopefully we will will never murder anyone. But we get angry. We nurse anger in our hearts. That can spill over into insult or sarcasm, chasm. And that can damage relationships. That can stop the circle being fulfilled. We may never commit adultery. We might lust after things or imagine another, another person's body for our own pleasure. Or we might lust after things that aren't good for us. And that can damage relationships. That can break the circle of right relatedness. Not just between us and God, but between us and others. And people get hurt, just as we said right at the beginning, without all the laws. People get hurt. We get hurt. Mainly, it's not so much the other people, it's what goes on in our hearts. It's that hurt that we, we bear in our hearts that can damage us. We may never openly bear false witness, but we might occasionally hope somebody fails at something or gets their comeuppance. Perhaps somebody's wronged us. We want revenge, really. And we harbour that in our hearts and that can damage relationships and break the circle of right relatedness. Jesus says he desires righteousness from us. Righteousness that surpasses. Righteousness that takes relationships seriously. A right relatedness between us and him and us and others. It involves a deeper movement of the heart And that's the righteousness that we need to desire to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the way God wants us to live. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came to show you the way to join me in fulfilling them. It's all about from me to you and from you to me. The laws and the prophets show the way to restore relationships. And I'll lead you into the healing righteousness of God. Follow me. 
Follow my example, Jesus says. And I will bring you into this full circle of right relatedness, which the Father and I share. And that's what we've got planned for you when we created you in our image. And that's righteousness. And that's the law, hopefully, summed up for you this morning. And I just want to pray for us as we finish. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we love you, uh, we worship you, and we have been worshipping you, and we will continue to worship you. Thank you for uh, the righteousness that is available in and through you. And help us today and in the days ahead to live righteously and justly in a right relationship with you and with those around us. And we may uh, perhaps consider in those laws and the ways that we can break out of a right relationship. Um, maybe God's been highlighting certain issues this morning. Maybe there are uh, relationships in your lives where there's strain or pain that God needs to deal with. Uh, maybe there are things in your heart that actually aren't right this morning. I just think, um, I just felt we should just give a moment really for restoration for that this morning. So that's what I want to do. I want you to just think if there's anything in your heart or in your lives that that relationships might get broken, people might get hurt, that there won't be harmony, because we should have peace in our lives. Because that's what Jesus has come to give us. So if there's anything um, that needs dealing with this morning, just, just lay that before Jesus now. And Jesus never condemns. Just ask him to... Come into that relationship. Ask him to take hold of that situation. Give it over to him and trust him this morning because his passion is to bring his peace and his shalom into every relationship. And that can be hard sometimes, especially if we've been hurt or or spurned or damaged by things in the past or by other people's words or actions but we need to be able to forgive those as Jesus forgives us and if we do that then um, that relationship will be restored and can be restored it might take time but restoration is possible through Jesus as are all things if we wait on the Lord so we're going to um, as I finish in prayer, we're going to have a, a, another couple of songs. But if there is anything, if anybody wants prayer, particularly for anything, feel free. It's not something we do very often, but please feel free perhaps to come and sit on the seats at the front. And um, I or Pete or, or somebody will come and pray with you if there's anything particularly you want prayer for this morning. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, um, for this morning. We ask that you will bring healing that you will restore relationships and that you will lead us into your kingdom now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.